my first question for Cindy as we get started into our conversation this evening is the following. How do you, as an individual, remain connected to the concept of place when you live in different places all the time. So for those of you who don't know, uh, when I met Cindy, she was living in Jerusalem, um, teaching at Jerusalem University College. And if you haven't been to the city of Jerusalem or even just to the Middle East, it's kind of a pressure cooker place in lots of ways. Also really beautiful and lovely and wonderful, but it's not simple. And so living there is complex but then that's not obviously where she was born or is an originally from. And even in her family unit growing up, you moved around quite a bit. Yep. And now, since I've known Cindy, she's sort of lived in a different place almost every year that we've known each other. Yep. Whether it's Jerusalem or Cheltenham for her dissertation. So I visit her, I've visited with her lots of different places. Um, including that she lived here for a little while or Sacramento for a little while or L.A. for a little while and seminary and everything else. A lot of us here in Silicon Valley uh, weren't born here. Many of us, in fact, I think it's 30 to 40% of Silicon Valley is born outside of the U.S. You were. So how do we find our concept of place or space if maybe perhaps you're feeling disoriented? Your family of origin lives far away. Maybe you grew up in a different place. Maybe you meet in a church that meets in a synagogue. Um, Maybe you're not sure sometimes where you fit in the national perspective or even local perspective of Christianity, all of those questions of like, where do I fit? Where is my place? I, um, I keep hearing the Michael W. Smith song in my head, place in this world for those of the people of like the older Christians in our community, my place in this world, my place (laughs) in this world. Right. So where do we fit? You're welcome. It's now in your head for the rest of the evening. Right. You're stuck with it now. So how do you negotiate that? What are the practices that have helped you remain anchored in that process and connected to the, to the identity that you have in place? That's my question. Um, it's a, tough subject. And it is a tough subject because I actually really love being nomadic. And yet I'm writing about and teaching people about the significance of being rooted and belonging. Um, And even when I was writing my dissertation, I was in a new place every three months, which my advisor thought was really ironic because I'm writing about how important it is to be connected to a community. And I just kept wandering. Um, so I've, I've had a hard time like grappling with this, and there are things I'm still aiming for in growth in where I would like to land and how I would like to be um, connected. But I would say in the meantime, like where am I now? There's maybe a few different ways that I'd answer it. One of them is what we just did together, which is celebrating communion. And for me, that is something that as I've traveled around the world and belong to different communities and have touched base with Christians, like the global Christian community, the celebrating the Eucharist together is one of my treasured things because I feel like we have all come from different levels of education. We all come from different economic strata, and yet we all come to take the bread and the wine together. Like we're both, we're all recipients. And so we're equal in the need to, to come together. 
um, and to celebrate as a community the story that we belong to. So communion is one. Um, Another way, and I was really glad we had a conversation earlier, um, even the example that I was talking about earlier about running, wherever I go around the world, I always run. And there is something about, like, it's kind of my way to get to know a community. So I go out and I see, like, how many people from the community are on the trails, like some places, there's like no one else out there. I'm all by myself. And other times I feel like every single person in the community is out there. And I'm like, I, to- I like belong in this group. Or um, you get to see the ages of people, the mixture of people. How many languages are you hearing? Um, so there's something about I just try to like touch onto the physicalness of the place um, in like where I am. Or even try to eat locally. So I, I do a lot of how can I belong to this community or um, how can I go into their community gardens and kind of put my effort into the food that is sustaining that immediate environment as a way to show that I belong or I have this kind of desire to belong. Um, and so the last thing I would throw out there is um, I think because No matter that I live and work in so many different places all the time, I'm always going back to Israel. I tell people that I do it because God realizes how dense I am, and I have to say the same things over and over again to remind myself as well as the people that I'm teaching. You know, I have to stand in the wilderness and talk about the lessons from the wilderness, and I have to stand at the temple and talk about the lessons from the temple. And so although that place, Israel, Israel-Palestine, is not my home place, it is a place that is anchoring me into the narrative. So if we're talking God's big story, what is our story? The continual like going back, rehearsing, reminding myself, reminding my students that we belong to something that is way bigger than ourselves has that grounding effect. I, I think over the years, one of the things that Cindy and I have bonded over is the fact that every chocolate. time, besides oh. chocolate and good food and wine and lovely people and the Bible specifically, but um, and the land, one of the things we've bonded over is that every time we lead a tour individually, we always call each other, even before like a big preacher teach conference, we call each other very quickly before a text and go, oh my goodness, I'm pretty sure I've never read the Bible before. We both right. have this freak out moment where I'm like, wait, where is, where is Tel Aviv? Where's Jerusalem? I don't know how to get there anymore. I've not been there before. Even if you were just there a few months ago, I always have that moment where I'm like, I don't remember what to teach at this place. So my first site in Israel that I always take people to first is the most studied and rehearsed site because I have this panic attack right prior to going where I figure I like freaked out that I don't know any of it. And of course, I actually know it quite well, but that moment where, for me, the grounding and the concept of where's my place in this world does come from the, from the story, from the text of this Bible, and going back to it over and over and over again, feeling like I'd forgotten it, feeling like I don't, I need to remem- remember it again, and every time I do it, I see something new, and there's at least... 20 times in a, in a two-week tour where I'm standing in the spot teaching the same thing that I've taught before yeah. about the Bible, reading the Bible again in the same passage that's highlighted and underlined and circled, 
And I'm thinking, oh, wait, everybody stop talking. I've never noticed that before. And it just kind of clicks. And so both of us have talked about another portion of the grounding for us is staying in the text, staying in the scripture. And I'm not talking about feel guilty because you didn't do a five-minute devotion every day, right? But if we're saying that we're a follower of Jesus, have we read his words lately? Have we thought hard about the call? Um, Or has it become our idea of what we want this story to be? Yeah. When Cindy and Phoebe were having a conversation this afternoon, Cindy said, or Phoebe said to Cindy, are you coming to church with us? And Cindy said, yeah, I'm coming. Like, she's preaching. And Phoebe said, oh, it's cool. Our church is really cool. And I'm overhearing this conversation. And I'm expecting her to say, there's food, right? There's going to be a cookie. There will be Tony. He gives me bubble water. And instead, she started listing people. Yep. The first thing she said was, Molly is there. And Justice is there. And she starts to list all the people, all these people. And I thought, yes. Yeah. And that's the other grounding, right, is that, when we find ourselves in a people that come together every week. So Sunday is an anchor, not just in our household because, you know, we're required to be here. We we are pastors of the church. But it is an anchor for Phoebe of, is this the day I get to see Audrey and Molly and Lucia and Tammy and Tom and Dana, like all of you, is this the day I get to see these people? And she'll ask me throughout the week, when is it Sunday again? And I don't know, for those of you who stand at the back, if you watch... Phoebe's typically the first one here. And if you watch as she waits patiently for a shorter person to show up, um, and then Audrey will, will come up the steps, and Phoebe runs and jumps into Audrey's arms. And we're all deeply grateful that Audrey is a very strong, capable, and very aware eight-year-old prepared to have this almost four-year-old jumping into you. That's, that's the anchor. That's the grounding. That's place. And... To, in addition to that, for our family, Phoebe comes here to this building other days of the week. We live around the corner. We drive by here. But we come here because we are also great friends with a lot of the Jewish members of Eight's Claim. But she doesn't ever call that church. And I've not, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit. But she'll be like, oh, so it's synagogue. But then this is Spark. So she does associate, even though the building's not shifted, that the people who are in the building shifts who she's engaging with in that community. Both are lovely and good, but this is like church. Um, so that's, as we've kind of talked and discussed, how do we stay grounded? Because I think like one of the significant parts of that is you don't have to have your own church building. We get so much into this right. church as a building idea. And to go, even some of the concepts I talked about tonight leaving your own city gate, going and meeting together at a place where God is central, that, right, is place. And so you you can be without a church building. You become the church. And so if we were to talk about even concentric circles, right, like you can have your personal relationship, your family relationship, your community, your Spark Church community— your Palo Alto community, your national community, it just keeps blossoming outwards. But it can be anchored in the people, not, not just the building place. Right, right. Um, even during this time in our nation, uh, so I've spoken with some of you all where you've started to feel like maybe you were at a, another church and you started to feel like that wasn't a place um, in the same way for you for whatever reason. 
Is there, what has helped you remain grounded in your um, faith expression of a, as a follower of Jesus, if, if you are a follower of Jesus? And just for complete vulnerability and transparency, for people who, who go and live anywhere else in the world and experience any other form of, of practicing Christianity, coming back can often be quite disorienting. And that was true for me coming back from Jerusalem back home. It was me. something had shifted. Yeah. And where do you, there were things like when you go and then you learn that that's not what Jesus meant when he said this. And then you go to another place or what, it, those things can be disorienting. So how do we continue to find ourselves or, or do we find ourselves continually connected to our, our place? In this world, anyone or or other thoughts or responses or pushes to what Cindy said? Yeah, well, living in, in the United in California for twenty seven years already, um, I came for three years. By the way, um, I think that the most difficult part is when you allow yourself to of not being from here and not being from there. Yep, and you stay in the limbo, and then. Uh, um, I think it's very easy to start just pulling things, and it's beautiful, to get what I want that is beautiful from one culture and put it in the other culture and yeah. together. But yes, the risk is then that you become a satellite. And you feel that you never develop real roots. And I, I think in my particular case, is more than acceptance and surrender, surrendering to the Lord about community understanding that's a commandment number first and his way to show love um because it's hard you know it's hard because i came already as an adult with children it's not easy just to change your culture and so a community has been really the place yeah yeah i'd say I thank you for sharing that because that resonates really well with me because every time I travel, even if I'm in other English-speaking countries, they always tell me you're not from here, like, right? Like, you sound different. You look different. You're saying weird words. We don't say that word. We say something else. Like, so it's a perpetual reminder all the time that I don't belong. And then I come back here And everyone here in the United States tells me the same thing. All my students do. You are the weirdest professor we've ever had. You are, like, concerned about things we've never thought about before. You don't fit our theology. You don't fit our culture. So then I come back here, and everyone's like, you don't belong. (laughs) And it... Again, like finding that community, it's really hard. And what makes me so perpetually sad is when I can't find anchor in a church. Because ideally, that's what we're supposed to be. I mean, if I lived in this area, I'd come here. Right? I mean, cause, because you as a community are so purposeful um, and super attentive to each other and people. And so you do that. Um, but it's, it's not normal. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard, um, and, you know, you guys are really, you're doing beautiful work paying attention to it, so I appreciate that. Any questions or thoughts about the book of Deuteronomy, the concept of place? Um, I'd be curious, too, of any of the things that, 
I brought up, if there was something that resonated well with you that you already started thinking about, like as a community, can we brainstorm how to bring concepts from Deuteronomy into Mountain View, Palo Alto, the Bay Area? So my, my question is that uh, liminous. That's way beyond me. Lim- but I understand what that means uh, now. Liminal. Like, liminal. 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 This idea of marking things so that you remember. Yeah. And that you, we went from the doorframe to the heart to the soul. I'm trying to think what practical, other practical ways are there to do it. Because one of the things I do at work, and it works sometimes, is like, like my passwords always have a Christian tone to them. Huh. And it's supposed to be that I will remember... But eventually, over time, they become numb. Right. So I guess that's really what I'm asking. What other of these hmm. reminders might be effective for all of us? I just throw that out there. Yeah, it's a good question. Well, when you were talking about the lentils and stuff, I thought, wouldn't it be kind of cool to put something like over the door we go out on? Just a reminder that we're going out. Yeah. And then, you know, maybe there's different, like he said, like passwords or different things that we're entering. Or maybe we could get little rituals, like before I go into my car or something, I can maybe have something on my car that reminds me I'm God's representative and that I want to bring his light. And, and like, or we could even think of maybe when we leave a town or even when we enter town and you see the population, you know, say San Jose population, blah, blah, blah. Maybe that can be a reminder. Okay, I'm entering this place now. Hmm. Uh, or like little things that we could help us remember. Hmm. Like Jesus, like, like in Deuteronomy, they, God told them to do those things. Yeah. And there's that write them on the, all of that, 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 and stuff like yeah. that. So, yeah. For me, I think it's being very intentional about um, some of the things I listen to. Because there's so many things that bombard us and so many things for me that knock me off balance. And so I need something to counter that. Whether it's re-listening to a message that was presented here or listening to a specific podcast or something. But I'm, I have to be very intentional about what I listen to to counter all the crazy um, and to bring me back into some place of balance. So I, I don't know if there's, uh, for, for me, um, like I said, I, I keep specific things like on my, um, my phone or even tuning in to, to certain radio stations and it, it's knowing when to turn the crazy off and the balance part on to, to reset. Yeah, good. I, I think, too, um, for those of you who are joining us on the retreat, um, Frank Rogers addresses that a little bit of how to remain sort of grounded, whether it's a, a short prayer or a breathing exercise or a picture of God's presence or a place where you remember, actually. Like one of the exercises, when was a time you felt connected to God? And for me, it's the Redwoods. Like that happened to me when I was a little kid, and it maintains that place. So if I, even right now, if I can just close my eyes and picture this one particular color green, um, that I can only find on the edge of the new growth of the redwood tree when I lay on the forest floor, forest floor. I'm immediately feeling like literally grounded even though I'm not there. Um, so maybe some of those uh, retreat practices and that's actual practice pushes back in. But I, I would say one of the things that helps me a lot, I, when I was a kid, I thought um, 
I need, uh, I need something to remind me to follow God today. So I'd go to elementary school and I'd be really, today I'm going to love God, love my neighbor, love my enemy, and have this big conversation in my head. I would be in like fifth grade. And then I would get on the playground and within like one recess setting, I was disappointed in myself very quickly. So then I decided I needed a reminder, right? Like well, I could wear my cross, like I could do something different. And I quickly forgot like I got numb to it. So I tried to create a headband that would be like this and that had a um, spring sort of loaded in front, <laughs> and honestly, that said like, love God. And it hung this little sign for me and then it wasn't sufficient. So I was like, I will be a fool, right? And I'll wear this if that would help me. But I realized quite quickly that I would find a way to look around it. And it would become, again, just one other thing that's in my way to do the thing that I want to do. And then I thought, well, maybe if it was neon, right? If it blinked and it constantly was sort of slightly blinding me, I didn't have any scientific background to make that action happen. But I tried all these different ways to sort of think about how to do it. And the only thing that I've found in my own life that's worked is having a community. And if I have a, a... a person that's sitting across from me or walking with me in my life that'll say something to me like, by the way, as a pastor, I've never gotten this question, but amongst my community, my friends, my family, how are you doing on loving God today? Like, how, how are you doing on loving your neighbor? How are you doing on loving your enemy? That question changes how I live. And if that's the first thing that I'm going to be sort of thinking about as I go out, which is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? This is the Shema, and Jesus is it's the most important commandment, and like unto it, all from Torah, Leviticus 19.18, and Deuteronomy. Then um, if that's what I'm encountering, which I think is the benefit a bit of being amongst the Israelites, right? Uh, ancient Israelites, this is their command, and they do have it marked everywhere. Now, they found ways to look beyond it, too, because they're also human, mm-hmm. But the reflection back to you, right? So if you did something and they're like, hey, you're supposed to leave the edges of your fields not picked. And the fact that you didn't do that and keep that command, we can all notice. And now we're talking about you. Look how, look what a bad eye that person has. They're not generous. And that then having a community that has committed together to, I don't know, say five core values that are reflected in the person of Jesus, right? And constantly trying to push and edge one another into that. That's helpful for me. Now, unfortunately, what I think we almost always ask each other is tribe questions. How do you baptize? Do you sprinkle or you don't, right? Uh, What's your bread like for communion? Uh, Do you allow women or not? Uh, what, what did you guys think about, you know, so we have these questions like what's your church's view on LGBTQ? What's your church's view on this? And so those are the questions that I get most often that are supposed to define my Christianity. Um, not from this community, but from other others, either outside this community, looking in and trying to figure out what types of Christians we are or other Christians. Um, how many, how many people did you baptize this year? How many people came to Christ, right? Like those, these metrics, those aren't the questions that help me. That's not, that's not the liminal question. That's not the sole question of, Daniel, how are you doing loving your neighbor? That's it. So for me, you can ask me that question. We, we always manage to put a lot of judgment, guilt, and shame into that really quick. So find a way to ask it whether I don't feel guilty. Um, but if we ask, find ways to sort of live alongside one another, maybe inspirationally. I see Robert come here every single weekend and love his community by showing up early 
and helping set up and having never run sound before and learning to run sound. And five years later, we have this whole new sound system. And Robert came and helped <laughs> Kevin put the whole thing in. And I mean, this is a practical aspect. So you're, you, all of you, and I could tell that story for each one here, how you live your life inspires me to do those things. I'd love to ask, just because I'm curious, and I've, I've asked a church community in Philadelphia too, there's something about in the movement from Deuteronomy to wealthy North American context. Um, that is, we are less and less an agricultural community. And so there's so many agriculture-based, um, like, uh, I don't want to say laws because it always spins it in the wrong direction, but like um, helpful attitudes and insights that are in the Torah that have to do with agriculture, like not over-extracting your fields and not over-extracting your trees and letting people to participate. But that's just not our context, most of us, anymore. And so, like, I'm really wrestling personally and thinking quite deeply about what is the modern day equivalent of not over extracting from the resources around me Mm -hmm. to give space to people that are more perimeter than me to come in. Right. And sometimes, because sometimes I think as a female teaching in the theological world, I'm perimeter (laughs) like most of the time. Except every once in a while I stop and I look around and realize there's an outer perimeter beyond me, which tends to be people of color and women of color in particular in the theological world. They're even more outside my perimeter. So how can I create breathing room to invite people from the perimeter in to say, you also get to have this story, right? So what are your thoughts on that? Uh, And I just want to note that Cindy um, is the first female theological professor hired at her seminary. And she has been hired specifically as a female teacher because they were trying to finally break that barrier. And when she was first looking at this job, I was like, run. (laughs) It's true. Because I I thought, that sounds so hard. And I've done that for 25 years, um, where I've been the first female or the first one. And it's often very lonely. And I just didn't want the hard loneliness of that. But there's been lots of blessings in it. And and it's been beautiful and and good in all sorts of ways. so, so when she asked that question, she's actually living on the very, very, very outermost edge of the inside where every conversation you have right now amongst your faculty, you are the only woman and you are asking for them to consider another point of view that's not been considered previously. I mean, we don't have to keep this conversation within the theological world either because right. it's, right. it's all of our world and all of our modern day. Like, how do we, how do we not... Harvest to the edges. In order to let people from the perimeter in, I think one of the things, just to start with, like the lack of agricultural um, relevance to people's daily lives, it's like you put it in different words. You said people on the perimeter. People know what a perimeter is. You know, yeah. we're, we got some math. We got some geometry going. Yeah. You know, so having a new narrative for it rather mm. than constantly couched in the same language. Yeah. 
Um, so you're embodying that, sharing it with community, all that. that that's one way it happens. Uh, but for me, the conversation about know my privilege uh, is very relevant for this because I have become much more aware in the last couple of years where because my, my gender, my, the way I look, my confidence with a microphone, whatever it is, people will listen when yeah. I start speaking. That's not true of everybody at the lunch table or at the conference table. And so when I'm at the lunch table or the conference table, one of the things I do is I say, am I talking because I can? Or am I talking because I really have something that, you know, was helpful for the conversation? And is everybody else getting a chance yeah. to share wow. what they bring? That's great. So, I mean, we all have land that we control. And we just have to learn how to yeah. share that. That's a nice way to put it. Yeah, what is the land you control? Like it. So one thing that I embraced was uh, God says, do not fear. And fear is what keeps us from pushing the boundaries of trying something new. Hmm. And... For me, um, do not fear is really trusting God. Mm -hmm. And if I trust God, I don't need to fear. And so it's, I don't know if it's chicken or eggs or what, but, <laughs> but uh, like uh, when I woke up from my coma and accident four years ago, mm -hmm. I was afraid. Um, until took about two or three days, and then I started thinking about God. It says, "Seek first the one verse I remember," uh, and I'm not sure I remember correctly, but it was, "Seek first the kingdom." And when I focus on that verse, the fear went away. Until I did, it was all about me. Hmm. And until I took the focus off of me to God, um, it was about the fear. Yeah. Why me? Why, why everything? So that. Nice. Thank you. I think that I, when we're afraid, then we're more protective, and then it's harder to reach out. Right? Yeah. Trusting God gets us further. I love it when I come here and people say, oh, he's a member of the temple. Like, am I not a member here too? <laughs> I'm, no, it's a place thing. That's what I'm tying the analogy to. Um, well, I was blown away by your presentation, as I told you at the break. But the way I took it for me is there's a spiritual connection with God, joy, that's always there within us, at least within me, and it's real clear. Am I watering that garden within me, though? with ethical things, with what God would want me to do. No, I've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. Um, so it's a little uncomfortable because some people say I do some pretty good things with different communities who don't realize I'm an old guy with gray hair. <laughs> I think I'm part of them. There's a lot of warning within me. To the extent I think I do that more, it'll open up even more trust. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So we just started at my job um, a group called People of Color at, at my job. 
and they showed, we just had the kickoff meeting, they showed this um, really good video of a person talking about diversity. Hmm. Um, and what she said is that we often, when we meet someone, we often look for the thing that we have in common. And that's how we connect with people. You know, we find out, oh, you're in the same field I'm in, yeah. or you're from the same place I'm at, or, or whatever, and that's our connectivity. And she said we should flip it. We should look for differences. Don't, when, when you initially connect with someone, look for how you're different. Explore how you're different. And so much so that pretty soon being different is the norm. And you're constantly looking for and appreciating people that are, are different. And I think Spark has done a really good job mm -hmm. in starting the, mm -hmm. the conversation around race and other things. Yeah. Um, and just opening the conversation, I think it's equivalent to us personally opening up our, our borders. I can learn a lot about other people through having a conversation and being open enough to hear where yeah. they're coming from and not be so um, distracted or blinded yeah. by my position only. So just yeah. looking for, for differences. Yeah, that ability to look for and appreciate the different stories people have can sometimes then be very scary because it can be, um, if you're looking for your tribe to shore up your narrative, looking for the differences can be really hard, but it's such a beautiful practice. Like when you do start, you start to... You just, you start to go, that's amazing. And that would be one of the other things, like the grounding or finding anchor points. Like one of the things I love is my connections to various communities, Christian communities around the world. And to go, they all have different expressions of worship and, and yet it's still God. Or there's um, the wisdom that people in different parts of the world have is something I can learn from. Right? Instead of always trying to set up this North American context as the thing to aspire to, where there's so much wisdom in the lives of so many other people to try to figure out. Listening to what you guys were saying, I was thinking um, that I am an introverted. So it's for me very easy to get into myself yeah. and fight with the world. And you were talking about the beauty of nature and the beauty of creation and my thinking goes, what the heck we have done with this? Hmm. It's like, what's going on? And, um, and, and, and I, Danielle knows that. I go also with, Lord, why do you keep loving us? This is like, it's crazy. Um, and I have found out that it's easy to probably get involved in a, in a bigger uh, movement or in a bigger cry and go for walks or find, uh, collect signatures and everything. And um, I had been uh, blessed by uh, a job that I have part of my job. I am an interpreter and part of my job has been interpreting at psychiatric offices. And what I have learned the most is, uh, and reminds me, brings to my mind a poem that I loved since I was very little, um, Max Ehrman. I don't know the name in English, it's Desiderata in Spanish. And there is one little part that says, 
listen to the dull and ignorant. They do have their own story. And, and you know, that practice and my job has really have made me resonate with that. I'm not saying that they are dull and ignorant, but I'm saying that there are people that are struggling. Mm. And I realize that in many circumstances, we don't listen to people. And we don't listen because they don't do what we, they do, because I know more, because I have nothing to say. And we forget that what we need is to listen. And um, I have been asking the Lord to really help me to be a listener and to look for the people that are not being heard in one-on-one. I'm not talking about big things, but people one-on-one. And as I said, being an introverted for me is really difficult to reach out. But I know, I know that people need to be heard regardless of whatever their circumstances are. And I think it's something we can start with. It's a little step, very little step that will become big. When you talk about what are we going to do with this uh, capitalism, capitalist war, it's too much. So I love when I can find that little thing mm-hmm. that I can start building on. Yeah, I mean, not being a king, not building or contributing to a kingdom like Egypt, but to something that is a unique vision is a lot. That's a that's a big calling, you know, and I mean forever and a day because um, the prophets do the same thing. The prophets continually go back to their own community and say, "See this thing you're doing? That's Egypt. You're not supposed to be Egypt." You know. So again, going back to community, or, even it's a matter right. of just perpetually reminding yourselves, like what based on what values are you building and investing? Right. A, or you see what you're doing, this is what Canaan did, yeah. right? And the land vomited them out, and now it will vomit you out too, right? So what we've talked a lot about at Spark is that it's not that God's saying, I love you, Israel, more, and so therefore I'm going to give you this really special place, and you just get to be there by virtue of your ethnicity, of your tribe. But instead, it's here's what I require of the people that live in this land, so that as the world passes through, they encounter the presence of God. And if you do That would the be things, Deuteronomy 4 and chapter 9, by the that's way. That's right. And if you do the things that the people before you did, yeah. you'll be gone too. And then they are, ultimately. And it, so it's if you, not, not just, um, you know, oh, I sacrifice. I, it's false worship. I think the kicker back is to this economy that God is trying to bring forth of what it looks like to really love God, love your neighbor, love your enemy, right, in all of this. And if you substituted Rome for Egypt, yeah, it's another concept of empire, right? When you're talking about Caesar, when you're talking about all of that in the Gospels, even, um, you know, the encounter with Herod and all that, it's the way that the Gospels are written. It's layered right on top of Of course, this will make sense to you because you know that you're not supposed to be building Egypt or Rome, but instead the kingdom of God. Which kind of, it all goes back to you, like when we're making decisions and when we're building or investing according to power um, or fear or money or um, any of these other like typical human driving factors instead of making decisions based on creating right relatedness 
between humans, God, humans, human, human creation. Mm-hmm. I, and I, I keep going back to that. Is it like, yeah, there's like the priority is supposed to be after the right relatedness of things. Like it can't just be, are you becoming wealthy or not? Because I don't, I don't think that's where the conversation is. It's how are you getting there? Is it and then by destroying others, you... are you seeking yeah. power? Or, or is it a truly, like, you're, you're investing back in something as beautiful as what Eden can be? Right. And, and when you get wherever you're going, are you doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with your God? Or are you deciding to edge yeah. out the poor, push out the widow, um, not care for the foreigner among you? Yeah. And God's got really strong words about all of that throughout our text. And from what I can see, when you read the Gospels, there's only two occasions where I can figure out that Jesus, in parable form, consigns someone to the pit of hell. And one is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and the other is the separation of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. And on both occasions, it's because of how they cared for the poor or did not. It wasn't about their right theology but about how they lived the kingdom. Tony Campolo says that when he dies, he just wants like one poor kid standing next to him saying, he helped me. (laughs) It's it's a little bit of a joke, right? (laughs) It's not really how it's going to work. You need like 10 poor kids. I'm just joking. Um, So, but that, that idea of what, what is the, the measure of our discipleship and followership of Jesus? Is it um, having the right answers? Is it having the right theology? Is it, um, your willingness or unwillingness to invite or disinvite somebody from the ta- to the table, right? All those kinds of crazy things. I'd like to end with, you asked a question of like, you talked about memory and place. And my, one of my questions was, how do we do that, right? So it's so great that the next generation goes into the land and they get a new experience where they can remember the covenant and then they have this centralized place. But this is not how we live today. So how do these apart from going to Israel and taking a picture of yourself on a mountain, um, and even then, right, it's, yeah. it can be a distant memory quite quickly. How do we continue to make this memory ours? Um, and I, I have some thoughts about how practically we can do that, and I'd be interested, like, how do we keep um, reminding ourselves and then remembering ourselves as a community or as individuals, if that's even possible, um, how this story still is our story and still belongs to us. And how do we, how do we stay in it when it's so easy to get thrown off balance? I can't believe this theologian this last week said this crazy thing about women. Now I have to go down this and just hang out over here and be really. (laughs) Are you referring to something maybe potentially that happened recently? Um, Nothing that doesn't happen every week, yeah. right? So it, the, these things aren't surprising. It's not surprising to hear um, certain entities or certain individuals, even in your life. Like everybody knows if you have Thanksgiving dinner with the same people, there's always going to be that one person that's going to say the racist comment, right? You just know there's that one family, not in my house, but somebody else, right? Um, so you, you know where it's coming and it shouldn't be surprising then when it happens, but it's easy to get thrown off balance by it and not remain grounded back into our story of who am I and who am I being called to be? And rather than that's it, I don't want any part of this family because of that one individual at the table. Um, So does memory belong to us too? And how do we find it and keep it? The concept of memory in place. 
Um, one of them is, so I'll, my family used to when we were little. So I come from a large family. And my mom kept a journal. And on Christmas Eve, I think it was on Christmas Eve, um, she would, or she and my dad would pull out this journal and say, as a family, that often didn't have enough money to do anything. <laughs> like, I mean, it was, it was always like a little tentative making ends meet. And, but they would say, as a family, this is where God was in our story this year. As a, you know, and it was, so it was very insular, right? It wasn't like a faith community, but it was our family. And it was really good to have that moment of looking back and going, in this way, God did this, you know, and then she would quickly like flip through and go, oh yeah, remember when we lived here and God did this and remember when we did and God did this, you know? So it was a, like a family time to go quite specifically in this year, but can we as a whole remember that he hasn't been absent throughout the entire existence of our family? Um, which is really, we don't do that anymore. So, you know, but uh, but I think that as a whole is such a, an amazing practice. And so I'll say I had this really very difficult season I was going through and quite distinctly questioning if I actually thought God existed or if I assumed too much in my life and I was finding him where he wasn't. So I'm like contemplating all this stuff. I happened to go like to, I was visiting a place where I had several friends and on three different occasions, three very different people started saying difficult things that had just happened. They were starting to kind of lose their faith in God, but God showed up and did this, this, and this, and this. I was like, all right. And then I heard someone else say pretty much the same thing. And then someone else who started talking about, and then suddenly I was like, in my life currently, I can't find him. But in their lives, I find, I see him, you know? And so in a sharing of the story and a rehearsing of the story beyond myself, it made me remember again, God's narrative is bigger than my life. And so I'm belonging to this bigger narrative in which it's touching many other people. And so kind of a hang in there. <laughs> that, that was kind of what I, I took out of that conversation. And I thought... You know, because again, one of my favorite things is to take communion with lots of diverse uh, church groups, high church, low church. We all do communion, which is something really incredible and really beautiful. Um, But even beyond then to create special time, like the church used to do this, like the Thanksgiving service where you just as a church, but kind of to be able to say quite specifically I saw God in this place this year. And for other people around you to go, well, in this whole different time, I saw God in this way. And it starts to show you how, how much bigger your perception of God needs to be. Nice. And then we have an author of a book that she uses, and it's a friend of um, Cindy's doctor, Sandy Richter. She talks about how when Christians approach the biblical text, it's as though we have Alzheimer's. We don't often know what's in our own story. And, um, and so I would just also add to that, that part of remembering is to go back to the story. Now that's not to say that simply just reading it words on the page is often helpful. Sometimes it's not helpful at all, 
um, at least for me personally. But if you, we can do it in community with a few others, they yeah. can also pull out um, some of those things or, or with a good study guide and do one in particular. That can help us stop floating over here and just making up fanciful and imaginative definitions for, for what a Christ follower is or should be or how it should look but remains grounded back into this, um, this memory uh, of how God's been at work for yeah. thousands of years, yeah. which is kind of what the Bible is. How did God work through Jacob? He was a real piece of work. Oh, here's how God did that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you all so much. We are so thankful. Thank you, Dr. Parker, for Happy joining. Happy to be here. Yay.